You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Um, on the Church Bibles, the reading is on page 860. 860. Do not judge. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there is a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Please take a seat. Back in the year 2000, I went to America and uh, did some, uh, lived there for a while. I ended up going there over a couple of years and worked with inner city um, African American kids almost exclusively from uh, inner city Pittsburgh and uh, kids coming out of very, very difficult situations. And uh, every one of these kids wanted to be one of two things. They either wanted to be a rapper or an NBA basketball player. It, there was no exceptions to that rule. Absolutely hard and fast. They also absolutely didn't want to end up like in jail um, like all of their fathers were. Uh, jail or dead was the, um, was the more likely destination than rapper or NBA player, but I digress. It was interesting for me in a cultural experience because believe it or not, in spite of what is popular today, in year 2000, at least in Australia, there wasn't much of a hip-hop culture, there wasn't really much um, rap on the radio, um, and, uh, and so when I got there, I had a lot of learning to do, and I sort of got fast-tracked into understanding hip-hop culture because every kid would spend all of their time just freestyle rapping. Very impressive, actually. It required a lot of intelligence to be able to just make up rhymes on the spot, but that was what they loved to do. And, um, at the time, uh, my first year there, Eminem had just emerged and it was a little bit confusing for these kids because Eminem was a white rapper and they weren't sure how to deal with a white rapper. They were very suspicious of white people in general. Um, fortunately to them, I wasn't a white person, they told me. I was an Australian and so that was a whole different thing. Uh, so I had, I had an in. Um, but for them, in the year 2000, the... the um, the real rapper that they all wanted to be like was Tupac. He had been killed, murdered, uh, I think just a few years before, but uh, one of his, the last songs he came out with, which was really popular with these kids, was a song called Only God Can Judge Me. Doug, I know you, you know that one. And um, he's always listening to it. Uh, and so um, it, it became a problem for us, though, because every night... We would have these devotions with the kids. We would gather them together in their little dormitory and we would, you know, 
tell them something about Jesus. And um, it became a problem because our angle um, was trying to get them to feel some level of conviction of sin, right? We wanted them to be able to understand what was between, coming between them and a relationship with God, and so then provide them with the solution to that problem, which was Jesus' death and resurrection. The problem was, whenever we got anywhere close to convicting them, their response would be this kind of knee-jerk, only God can judge me. Like, don't, don't tell me that I need someone to save me. Don't tell me about the fact that I'm a bad person. Only God can do that. Only God can judge me. That kind of attitude is not contained, right, just to Tupac aficionados. That is like a bumper sticker doctrine of our culture today. Don't judge me. Nobody can judge me. You can't judge me. Um, You might add, maybe you might add, only God can judge me, but more likely the general sentiment in the world around us today is no one can judge me. No one has the right to judge me. And this is a problem. On the face of it, Jesus in this passage is kind of saying the same thing, right? Like verse 1 of our reading, do not judge. Just imagine if Jesus tweeted that out, just that on its own today, like he would have millions of people liking, retweeting. Yeah, Jesus is our boy. In fact, when people want to kind of criticize Christians, what they will do most often in my experience, people who aren't part of the church will say that they are judgmental and therefore hypocritical because Jesus said, don't judge. People know this passage at least, at least this verse. Jesus says, do not judge. The people around us, the culture around us, maybe even the culture within us says, amen. It's really important for us then, if Jesus is saying do not judge, it's really important for us to understand what he means. In fact, the literal translation here, what he said literally on the mount is stop judging. So it's not just like an abstract commandment. This is a direct, like, stop doing what you're doing. He assumes that all of the people listening to him, and by extension us today, are judging and shouldn't be. Stop judging, Jesus says. So if Jesus looks at you and says, stop doing that, you need to know immediately what it is that he wants you to stop doing. So that's what I want to ask this morning. What does he mean when he says, do not judge? And I think one of the ways that you can discern this kind of thing is by first asking, what doesn't he mean? And, and something that he can't mean, and something that he's misinterpreted as meaning, I think, something that he can't mean is, um, do not critically think about things. Do not be judicious. Do not be discerning. He can't mean that. He's not saying don't have any critical thoughts. Don't ever ask the question what is right and what is wrong. He can't mean that. I mean, he can't mean that because the rest of this whole sermon we're going to get to, we've only got two weeks left after this for a whole chapter, but the rest of this whole sermon, he is telling you to be judicious, to be discerning, to think critically. Right, just over and over and over again, he's going to say, uh, you need to know the difference between sand and rock. 
if you're going to build your life on something. You need to know the difference between good fruit and bad fruit, good trees and bad trees, sheep and wolves, a wide gate and a narrow gate, right? You need, like all that he's going to tell us from now on requires discernment, critical thinking. And, I mean, this is the genius of Jesus, the very last verse of this very passage requires you, in some sense, to be judgmental or at least to be discerning, right? Verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. That requires you to know what a dog is, what a pig is, and to make a decision not to throw before them what is holy, not to throw before them what your pearls. Most of us read that, most of us heard John read that last, that last verse and said, well, what? What does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means be discerning. If you know Jesus' teaching, you'll know that pearls most often refer to the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom of God, the kingdom itself. And pigs and dogs probably aren't representative of what we expect them to be. Like in our day, dogs and pigs, I've got a picture here, this is what we think of, this, right? That's what we think of. Dogs and pigs, they're so, that little, I just want a little piglet to run around my backyard. And he can be best friends with the little dog and they can maybe make a movie where they go on adventures together. And that, so that, that's our expectation, a domesticated view of pigs and dogs. Not so for Jesus. In Jesus, in, in first century Palestine, dogs are pack animals that roam around looking to do damage. They're wild animals, they're dangerous animals. Same with pigs. Wild boars, up to 300 kilograms, right? Units that can tear you apart. And obviously that's what he's referring to because he says the danger is that they're going to trample the pearl and they're going to tear you apart. So, he gives us this teaching, I think, just as a check, so that we don't take this one verse, remember, don't read a Bible verse, don't read a Bible verse, unless we take that one verse and say, well, then I can't, I, I mean, I'm just going to, I'm just going to flow through life like water, I'm never going to make any discerning decisions about anything, I'm never going to condemn anything as being wrong or evil, I'm not going to really have a position on anything, that's the, that's the Jesus way. no. From verse 6 to the end of the sermon, he's going to continually tell you, be discerning. Exercise judgment. And the shocking thing about this verse, and I don't even know if I fully understand this verse or if I just don't want to fully embrace it, but what he's saying is there are going to be people that you should not share the gospel with. There are going to be people who are so violently opposed to the message of the gospel, that you ought not waste your time sharing it with them. <laughs> that requires real discernment to be able to obey that teaching. That requires very careful thinking. He gave us a kind of example of how this should look in, in Matthew later on in this gospel in chapter 10. He says, when you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy or who is receptive is another way of 
saying that, and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it, and if the household is worthy or receptive, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, unreceptive, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town, an act of judgment. You see this in Paul's ministry all the way through. He goes to everyone. He will speak to anyone about the gospel as long as they are receptive to it. As soon as they turn and reject him and are violent and, you know, make it obvious that they are hard-hearted towards this message, he he simply goes on. So as I say, I don't, I, man, I'm still wrestling with this one, but at the very least, for us to obey this kind of thing, it means we're going to need to be discerning. And it probably means you shouldn't spend hours upon hours online debating with people who hate the gospel. That's probably a, a really big waste of your time. Maybe just saying spending hours and hours online is a really big waste of your time. The point is, if you're spending all your time throwing the gospel of the kingdom before people who hate it, what about the lambs, the lost lambs? What about those who are going without your attention, compassion, love? I think that's Jesus' concern in this. The bottom line is, though, we're going to need, if we're going to be his followers, we're going to need to use critical thinking. We're going to need to use discernment. So what is he speaking against? If it's not that, what is it that he's speaking against? Let's look at verse 3 and 4. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look There is a beam of wood in your own eye. Hmm. So this is, Jesus doesn't want this to happen, right? He doesn't want me, (laughs) this is ridiculous, he doesn't want me to turn up to sister and say, ah, mate, look, I just, I really, I don't want to make a big deal of this, um, but I can can really see that you're... um, You've got a little. You've got. You've got a. You've got a bit of dust in that eye there. It's right. So he's. This doesn't work for the audio um, recording. But there, I have a big plank of wood in my eye when I'm saying that. That's. And in fact, that as ridiculous as that looks, just notice there's a. You know, you've got a speck there, and you're as ridiculous as that. It's not even half of it because Jesus uses the word here for a. A, a beam of wood, a log of wood, something that would be used for the mast of a ship. An enormous, big, thumping, great bit, bit of wood. What they would use in a battering ram, right, in a siege engine. And then the speck is like pretty much the smallest thing that they can describe. So again, he's doing his hyperbole thing. It's for comic effect. It's meant to jolt us into understanding how can you go around with a beam of wood, with a, 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 the, the mast of a ship in your eye and go around pointing out the speck in the eyes of others? What's the issue? What's the core sin here? What's, the, what's he trying to expose? This has been a huge theme throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. You got it? 
Starts with an H. Hypocrisy, exactly. The issue here is not critical thinking, but hypocrisy. Verse 5, hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. It's hypocrisy. That's the beef that Jesus has. In fact, that seems to be like the biggest beef he has in general. When he looks around at the people of God, it's hypocrisy that gets him all worked up. It's hypocrisy that puts him in the temple courts flipping tables. It's hypocrisy. That's the cancer that he wants to root out of our lives as his followers. He wants us to be discerning, but when that discernment that he wants us to have is combined with pride and self-righteousness, that's where you start getting a critical spirit, a hypocritical, critical spirit, a hypocritical spirit, hypocritical, yeah, hypercritical. When you get that, then you become a plague on the church. And man, this kind of hypocrisy, this critical spirit is a plague in Christian churches everywhere. And I don't even need to give you the illustrations because you know it. You've seen it. You might have even done it. Hypocrisy. We know that he's speaking to the church here because you notice he's, he's, he's speaking to a situation between brothers. He's very specific here. How can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye? So he's talking about this is an in-house issue. We've probably got all kinds of problems with judging people outside of the church. I'm sure we do. But here he's talking about the in-house, the intra-family issue of judging one another harshly, of judging one another unfairly, of judging one another hypocritically. And the hypocrites who judge are the same as all of the hypocrites that Jesus has highlighted in this sermon. They're the people who are actually doing the right thing. Have you noticed that? All the hypocrites that Jesus has referred to are doing the right thing. The issue is not what they're doing, right? They're giving to the poor. They're praying. They're fasting. They're seeking to remove a speck from someone else's eye. All of these things are good things. Seeing a speck in someone's eye and wanting to remove it is a good thing. Seeing the sin in somebody else's life and wanting to point it out, highlight it, and convict them of it is a good thing. The issue is hypocrisy. The issue is doing these things, giving, praying, fasting, pointing out sin, and doing it in such a way as to inflate ego. Right? To, to, to spotlight me as one of the holy ones here. Someone who has it all together. That's why the picture is so absurd. The, the guy who thinks he has it all together, pointing out the sin in someone else's life, has a log in his eye. 
That's the hypocrisy. That's the absurdity. Doing a right thing, but doing it so as to platform myself. I know that churches are hotbeds for sinful judgmentalism. Not carefully discerning, not critically thinking, not burdened by a desire for holiness, Christ-likeness, but just outright judgmentalism. I've been in a church where we had some new Christians come along and they were, you know, new Christians are always a thorn in the flesh of self-righteous people because they don't know the rules yet. Right? They, don't, they don't know how you should be. They're not wearing a knitted jumper like I am. Haven't been in the church long enough. We had people who would leave halfway through the service so they could smoke uh, out the front of the church and it was because they were addicted to smoking. Like, really addicted to smoking. They were still figuring out what it meant to follow Jesus with respect to what they were consuming. And... And man, I was, just, I was just so pleased that they were here. I was so pleased that they had received the invitation to come to church. And yet, they were told, to this day I don't know by who, uh, not to stand out the front and smoke because we, we, it, it sends the wrong message. Like, what is the right message? Surely the right message is there are people here in this church today who don't know all the rules yet. Or still figuring it out. But apparently for some, the right message is, everything here is ship-shaped, thank you. It's a critical spirit. It's a self-righteous, hypocritical judgmentalism. Maybe you've been part of the small group that essentially functions as a... uh, a board of criticism for the previous Sunday service. Like we spend an hour and a half just talking about what went wrong and what we don't like and the people that we don't like and then close in prayer. That's the kind of critical spirit that will kill the church. There are sometimes people coming into churches. We've got, we've got a couple of... Uh, nomadic Christians who turn up every now and then and they're just going from church to church trying to find one that's as perfect as they are. And I just see them a mile away. Oh, it must be that time of year. And no matter what I say, this, I will say something wrong, pronounce something wrong, go for too long, go for too short. Never gone for too short, but And they will never be under the authority of anyone because no one is holy as they are. There's a critical, self-righteous, judgmental spirit driving those people. Here's the worst of it. Let's just get right down deep into the bad news. The worst of it is these logs that are lodged in our eye we can't even see them in the first place. Take a look again at verse 3. 
Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? We don't notice. We don't see it. These prevailing sins, these things that if we could only see it would probably humble us enough to kind of let up on judging other people so so harshly, these things that are so evident to God and probably to those around us, these things we are blind to. This is how Tim Keller says it. I find this very illuminating. He says, know that your worst character flaws are the ones you can see the least. By definition, the sins to which you are most blind, that you make the most excuses for, and that you usually minimize are the ones that most have you in their grip. This is why, for example, Jesus says when he talks about greed, which no doubt is a log for many of us, one that we don't see, he says, be on your guard or watch out. He knows that we domesticate our sins and become so familiar with them that we make peace with them and aren't perturbed by them until we become blind to them. So what are we going to do? Like, if you are here today and you are committed to becoming more like Jesus and obeying him as Lord, and he's just said, stop judging, it's a huge log in your eye, right? If all of this is true and you have gotten to the point where you have, have realized the truth, which is that the Christian life is all about change. You never arrive at the destination, right? Christian life is everyday change. There is always an abundance of things that, within me that need changing to be made more like the perfect man, Jesus. If you are in that position, then you rightly are starting to get a little bit agitated, Well, I want to be obedient to Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want Jesus to ever look at me and say, hypocrite, you're a hypocrite. I don't ever want that. Then I'm in a bit of a pickle because it says, I don't notice the log that's in my eye. I'm blind to that which I need to be most aware of. So what do we do then? How do we deal with the log? that we don't even see. And the answer here is that every one of us needs one or preferably many humble, grace-filled brothers and sisters who know their own log, who are then in a position to remove ours. We need humble, grace-filled, forgiven sinners who know that they're sinners, who aren't pretending to be those who have graduated to Jesus' status. They don't have a Messiah complex. They're not trying to stand on street corners to be noticed by people. We need the kind of humble, grace-filled Christian who can look us in the eye and remove the log, remove the speck. Verse 5, 
First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So you need someone who has recognized their hypocrisy, ask the Lord to remove their log, and now can see clearly to help you with yours. Do you have that person? If you don't, you're finished. You will go on stumbling through life with a log in your eye, being a judgmental person. So who is your person who sees clearly? If you're not yet married, this is the person you want to marry. If you're not yet in a small group, then you need to be in one because small groups are populated with these people. If you can't be in a small group for whatever reason, that's probably a quarter of us, then you need to find someone that you can meet with regularly enough who can look you in the eye and with love, right? Truth in love can say to you, I want to help you with this speck. I want to help you with this log. I can see a prevailing sin that you have not seen for yourself. Let's work on it together. You need these people. Now, some in this room today might be tempted to think, you know, is this really such a big deal? Like earlier when Jesus was talking about adultery, murder, I get that. Yeah, we, we, we don't want to be adulterers, murderers. But being too judgmental, is that really such a big deal? Well, I've described it as a cancer that will kill churches, but maybe that's just me doing preacher things. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 1 and 2, let me read it. This is the consequences for not attending to this. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Do you get it? It sounds a lot like the terrifying words that he used in the Lord's Prayer. Remember verse 14 and 15 of chapter 6? He says, if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Jesus puts a great deal of responsibility on us to determine how God will treat us. Unforgiveness met with unforgiveness. Judgmentalism met with judgmentalism. The measure you use will be used for you. So here's the question you need to ask. First of all, the answer to those of you who are thinking, is this such a big deal? Yes, like eternally big deal. Like Judgment Day, big deal. The question we need to ask ourselves and the antidote, the remedy for our judgmentalism, our critical spirit, is simply to ask the question, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ on Judgment Day, how much grace do I want Him to extend to me? Let's measure that out for a second. Like when I stand before Him and He has seen everything, Thought, word, deed. He knows me. Every failing within me. 
how much grace would I like him to measure out? If the answer is all of it, please, just all the grace you have would be nice, then that's your answer. As you come to judge brothers and sisters around you, as you're tempted to condemn others for not yet being as theologically erudite as you, or not being as morally realized as you, or not wearing the right kind of knitwear, whatever it is, wearing, God forbid, wearing a hat in church, friends, like what, whatever it is, whenever you're tempted, then think to yourself, how much grace do I want God to judge me with? And then go and do likewise. Let me read it again, lest you missed it. You will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. How easy it is, my friends, for us to excuse our sins as, you know, a little bit of a failing here and there, and then condemn the sins of others as worthy of eternal judgment. Jesus says, that, stop that. If you want to be my disciple, stop that. Now, if we're going to do it, we're going to need one another. We're too blind to it. We're too hardened to it. We're just too downright judgmental. So we need one another to point this out. We actually need one another to help us make all of life all about Jesus, to help us treat others as he has treated us. I'm going to pray to that end. I'm going to invite you to come and pray with us if you need to pray through anything at all to do with the sermon or anything outside of it. Come and pray. We're going to take up a collection during this time. And so as I pray, I'm going to ask you to please stand. Please stand up and let's pray together. Father, Christians, Christians like us, are overly critical of others. We're judgmental. We are unfair in the way that we measure out and meet out what we see as justice or fair criticism. We know that we're wrong. To varying degrees, each one of us is wrong. Each one of us is living as a hypocrite. So I pray, Lord, God, help us. I pray that we wouldn't trust ourselves in this. None of us is sufficient for this task. We need one another. I pray that each one of us would find in this congregation or outside of it a humble, repentant sinner who can help us see clearly. I pray that we would take your words seriously and that you would make us more like your son Jesus, full to the brim of grace and truth. And we pray in his name. Amen.